to the Pastel Podcast. This is episode six. I am Billy Senga, and I am here with, and this is where you introduce yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I am Pan. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really it. I'm an English major. I feel like that's all you really need to know about me. <laughs> yeah, especially in terms of how much chatting we're going to do. Um, I trust that your writing ability is going to come out and your speaking ability as well. Um, <laughs> Probably. Yeah, yeah, so this episode is going to touch on something that is relatively new to me but more familiar to Pan from like a personal level and that is the topic of how we perceive and don't celebrate uh, neurodivergence in society as much as we should and in terms of my role and where I'm speaking from I'm a relatively new special education teacher even though I've worked with students who have uh, learning disabilities and students who are um more specifically, students who are on the spectrum and experience ADHD, those are the two that are more specific that we're going to talk about today. Um, a lot of my language and understanding and like perception of ability really, really shifted this fall just because of conversation and training. But um, Pan, you have more of a, a personal relationship with this topic. And I'm, I'm wondering what what is the source of your passion for talking about neurodivergence and specifically autism and ADHD? Yeah, so my passion comes from um, my younger sister. Her name's Belle. I'll probably refer to her a lot in this because I like absolutely love her. Um, but she was diagnosed with autism um, when we were both very young. She was about like two and a half years old and she also has ADHD. So ever since then, I've been like writing essays, researching, learning as much as I can. Um, from other autistic people and also from what I can find on the internet, which trust me from early 2000s to now has changed quite a lot. So uh, my passion just comes from my sister and kind of wanting to make a better world for her. That's that your sister's very lucky to have to have a sibling like that. Um, and I think just to I to define what neurodivergence is what neurodiversity means. So that's just like the variation of how the human brain operates. So that could be in terms of like cognition, how you remember things, how you learn things, how you hold attention, your mood, um, how you mentally function, how you socialize with other people or don't socialize with other people. And it's it's a relatively new concept. I think it's, I think it was coined by sociologists, but it's not even like 20, 25 years old of a concept, which means that like our understanding of neurodivergence is relatively fresh. Um, I also spoke on how earlier in November was like special education day that legislation around giving students rights in getting accessible education is not even 50 years old so I think you've done more research than I have and I'm wondering <laughs> what is something what's something that you learned that you feel like would have been beneficial for educators and quote-unquote neurotypical people to know when interacting or teaching people who are neurodivergent I think there's a few things, but I'll kind of narrow down on two. Um, when talking about this, my biggest thing is always that acceptance is important, which is very general and vague way to go about it. But I think it's that, like what I always say is that it's not the autism that's the hardest part for her. It's how people react to her being autistic. That is the hardest part. Um, so it's not so much the autism itself, although that does bring in its own struggles and things like that it's more other people and how other people react to her and her being autistic. So I think one of my biggest things has always been like just pushing acceptance and the fact that like 
she's a normal person and like she's like everyone else like she likes to go shopping and she's she's very extroverted unlike me um like she loves talking she loves she'll talk to anyone like she'll go up to a janitor at school and be like hi how are you what's going on da, da, da. like you know i and it's like kind of breaking down those stereotypes as well like a lot of people think she's the introverted one and i'm the extroverted one and i'm like because of you know the stereotypical like autistic people tend to have a problem with uh being social which is true on some level a lot of autistic people and people with adhd have uh issues with social cues um and things like that and socializing in general um but however she's the extroverted one like she loves 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 talking to people like all the time um so that's that's one thing i think another thing is also realizing um and i'm speaking just specifically about autism and adhd because that's what i know about but specifically with that, realizing that um, whether you're dealing with kids or adults, every person with autism is different. So they experience um, different things being autistic. Uh, I feel like symptom is always the wrong word, but I don't know what other word to use. But like the symptoms of autism are different for every person. So I think as an educator, it's very, very important to realize like your one student who's autistic is going to be different from your other student who's autistic or who has ADHD. And the same goes, I think, with learning disabilities as well. Like each student is gonna be different and recognizing the individuality within that, I think is really important and will really help the student um, in the long run. Yeah, definitely, I agree. That shift, I think, has been a lot easier for me to make in, in my job because the special education department at my school is just constantly seeking um, to improve itself in terms of accessibility. So I've thankfully never even heard the word symptom of, of ADHD or symptom of autism, symptom of dyslexia. Like we refer to as a, like, this is a characteristic of a learning disability, or this is a trait of a learning disability. Um, and each student, even if I, I have maybe six or seven students who have ADHD and um, they each get their own individualized uh, learning plan because how the ADHD affects them is very different. Like some of them are fine if they have a fidget spinner. Some of them need frequent breaks. Some of them will hyper-focus and turn in 15 assignments at like midnight and then others will just never do anything. Um, so I do agree that a one-size-fits-all approach is not helpful even if you are coming from a place of wanting to support them. But also like the, the harm of underestimating someone and assuming that like they can't do something or they're not confident or they're not... Um, they shouldn't apply to a certain college or a certain job um, or take on a leadership role at school in a club. I think that that is just blatantly ableist. Um, it also makes me think about how some limitations that people place on neurodivergent people um, are again coming from a good place but accident like accidentally or intentionally cause more harm and that brings up um Sia's new movie music where oh, she God. has <laughs> where and I read her tweets I read some of her responses to people critiquing the fact that she cast um Maddie Ziegler who is like a young dancer who she has worked with before um Maddie Ziegler is neurotypical and like um like talented she's obviously like a talented dancer and stuff um but she plays um I don't know what exactly her character um her character is an autistic teen named Music, and so it's kind of like a musical, um, and it's supposed to be like an empowerment type of film, and she said that she had researched the movie, and other people were saying it would be harmful to force an autistic actor to play an autistic character, even if that is more uh, 
authentic in terms of the narrative and in terms of representing autistic folks. Um, other people are like, you're assuming that like autistic folks can't act, like you wouldn't even know who is an actor who's on the spectrum because it shows up differently. I want to know what are your thoughts on how this whole thing has come about and, and her casting choices. Oh wow, that's big Billy. I have so many thoughts about <laughs> this film. Um, but I guess to start off, I think what I was most upset about was her response to the criticism. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it seems like she went in having good intentions, right? And I think if you go in, and especially coming from a creative arts perspective and a writer perspective, if you're looking to represent a certain group that you're, you yourself are not already a part of and can't um, speak from your own experience with, I think the research and consulting people and having people actively a part of the project who are within that group you're looking to represent is very, very, very important and very like tedious in a way um, because you want to make sure that they're well represented. Um, and so I think in Sia's case, I think she should be more open to criticism um, because even though she came in with good intentions, it doesn't mean she went about it in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, and for her to kind of come back and tell actors who are autistic who are saying like, well, I could have done this role, you know, I've heard it be like, well, maybe you're just a bad actor, I think is a really bad attitude about it. I think it also shows that maybe she didn't come into this like really wanting to represent autistic people, you know, because if that's the reaction you're going to have to criticism, then were you really investing enough research and enough time into consulting autistic people and to actually like get autistic people actively involved in this? Exactly. And that's kind of my overall opinion on it, but. Not to deviate from like representation as a whole, but like you think about like, where is the desire to suddenly start bringing underrepresented people into media coming from? Is it coming from the fact that like you will get praise for it, it's good publicity, or like is this a community that you have like done quote unquote three years of research for and like it's something that means something to you. Um, like something that I learned from, it's an Instagram page called Disability Insight and it's even as an educator and even as someone who posts on social media about things that I'm learning, um, I try to not be like the face of a disability movement or like a pro-disability movement or an empowerment yeah. movement because I'm like I'm learning and I'm not going to speak on behalf of them. I'm not going to like praise myself or be like, I'm a filmmaker who put autism at the forefront of my story. And no one's done that yeah. before. Um, and if someone criticizes me for it, they have no idea. I've been working with Autism Speaks. I've done all this. Autism Speaks is also just a very sketchy organization. Um, and just from see seeing their advertisements from a very young age when I was in school, they've always treated autism like a disease that parents are grieving and they're like how are we going to like make our child normal how are we going to like reduce the visibility of autism through our organization and it's just super counterintuitive and yeah what would you say are like skills that you think that you've seen that you've researched that neurodivergence people actually have that like neurotypical people could benefit from like my students do things that I'm like that's a superpower <laughs> and I'm like why are we not acknowledging that I think, I mean, again, I can only speak from the experience of, like, my sister. Mm -hmm. So just, like, knowing her as a person, like, she has really good emotional intelligence and is really good at, like, reading people partially because of how people react to her. Mm -hmm. So she kind of knows if someone's going to be coming up to her, and she's 17, by the way, and treating her like a baby, she knows mm -hmm. that that person, like, may not be the best person since they're, like, you know, talking down to her and things like that. So I think there's kind of like, not a humbleness, 
but like a sense of like getting a better read on people because of how people react to her. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. It's kind of hard to think about like what people could take from it. Because to me, I think, you know, again, I'm just speaking from my experience with my sister. Like, I never see it as like she has any special skill or anything like that. Like, she's just my sister and I love her. And I'm like, yeah. people should like learn from her because of who she is. Because just as a person, like outside of the autism and ADHD, like she is the most loving person ever. Like she will give you the shirt off her back. Mm -hmm. Like she talks to everyone all the time. She makes everyone feel great all the time. Yeah. Like she praises everyone. She's wonderful. So I think just learning from them as a person for who they are, because mm -hmm. there's so much I can learn. I learned from my sister just by her being her and not her being autistic. So I guess that's where I would go with that. No, that's a really good point to make. Cause like, whether you're highlighting it as like a superpower or as a disability, like that's not the forefront of anyone's identity who, who has it. Um, I think about, there was a speaker that I, that I listened to in, in class for my grad program to be, to get a master's in special education. And she was talking about how there, there are things that she is able to do and other people with ADHD or, or learning quote unquote deficits are able to do and how detail oriented a lot of my students are like what they perceive what they remember um and when they are hyper focused on something they pick up on things that no one else can pick up on and so I think of like historically like a lot of like major scientists a lot of musicians were technically students who probably would have had IEPs or probably would have been in like unfortunately separate classrooms before legislation allowed them to be in inclusive classrooms but it's like because it's always been even in sometimes how I'm talking about it it's always centered as like how can we support you as an autistic person or like what can or can't you do as an autistic person and like they're just trying to exist in the world like everyone else um yeah so maybe like don't over uh, overcompensate over accommodate and obviously it's illegal to under accommodate and not consider what their needs are but that's a really good point to make is that like, I don't know, they're just regular people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I think that's really important because like I said, I, my sister was diagnosed in the early 2000s, which was much, much different from where we are now. Like we've greatly advanced um, in regards to acceptance, research, et cetera, on autism and ADHD since then. Mm -hmm. um, like people used to think my sister was contagious. Like they wouldn't go near her. Um, because they were like, oh, I can catch autism because there was so little information on it at the time. Like my mom would like read books and it would be like, it's the mother's fault. Like that was the amount of information that was given at the time. And my mom did uh, credit to her. She did extensive research and worked really hard to get my sister the service she needed, et cetera. And I'm going off. Um, but no, the original point. Always celebrate moms <laughs> who are actively supporting their students. It's like doing the research yourself, I think, and you as a sister, that, that's, your sister is a very, has a very good family behind her. Yeah, we, we try, but she's also a great person, which helps, you know, and she's a hard worker. Like, she's also worked so hard to get to where she is and everything. But going back to the superpower thing, um, that's been a big thing that we talk in my family all the time is that there are a lot of, especially TV shows and ideas that people have that, like, autistic people have like this special power or they're like psychic or like you know there is a thing where like two percent I believe uh don't quote me on that number of autistic people uh do kind of have some like special thing like they're really good at reading music um or they're really good at like remembering numbers or dates or things like that but the the point is like not every autistic person has that and even when they do it's just like cool thing they have like it's not like a superpower 
Yeah. So I think that's another thing is like breaking down that stereotype as well. Like they're people, they don't need to have something special to be like worthy of recognition or worthy of being, you know, a functioning member of society. Like yeah. they can just be like me and you, like normal average Joes, like going around and doing our thing, you know, and they just so happen to also be autistic. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And I think acceptance comes from like normalization and just integration into society to like visibility doesn't need to be like hyper visibility and like over you know trying to trying to be like not overwoke yourself and try to be like I'm so yeah. mindful and I'm so aware of your disability and people are just like just leave me alone it's fine um that also makes me think about the fact that diagnoses and demographics have changed a lot too over the years and um I actually don't and have not worked with a like female identifying student who has ADHD or autism. Uh, in, in my research, in my learning, uh, girls are diagnosed like so much less and their, their um, characteristics are like perceived very differently because they're like, well, girls are quieter and they're usually on task and that doesn't look disruptive. So like she can't have ADHD. ADHD typically can only come from like a rowdy boy, a hyperactive boy. Um, young boys of color are diagnosed so much more than like white and Asian students um, or black and brown boys of boys um, compared to Asian and, and white students and boys more than girls and um, oftentimes like that conversation just stops after high school like there's people going into college and work who are still autistic who still have ADHD and like how are they accessing the responsibilities of their job and you know not experiencing ableism or having a hard time um, doing their job well with accommodations because we just stop talking about it and we stop even acknowledging adults who have who have learning challenges and stuff like that. So I wonder if you've come across anything about that, about like the demographics and how or why that shift in who we see as an average idea of what ADHD looks like is. I think it's definitely progressed. Like talking about when my sister was diagnosed, um, they wouldn't even often give parents the autistic diagnosis because they were afraid of parents' reactions. Um, because a lot of times parents would rea react really negatively and would be like, well, you're wrong. Like my child's not autistic. Like what even is that? You know, like that kind of thing. So when she was first diagnosed, she was actually diagnosed with, I believe it was PTNOS, which is basically saying like, she has something, but like, you know, mm -hmm. we're not gonna say specifically what, um, and my mom was like, hell no. She's like, I did my research. I'm pretty positive she has autism. So my mom got my sister re-diagnosed, and of course it came back that she was autistic. Um, thankfully, they don't give that diagnosis anymore. Um, that's partially because of the acceptance that's come out and um, the awareness that's been spread about um, autism and autistic people. Mm -hmm. You know, so parents are less likely to have that negative reaction. Does it still happen? Of course, you know, not every parent is uh, wonderful when it comes to these things, but some some are. I think my mom is definitely one of those. Um, but even now, I mean, you know, her being a girl has been very challenging with autism and ADHD because oftentimes her, you know, her characteristics that she had of autism were um, underlooked. Mm. And oftentimes she was you know, like professionals would come in and try and place her in a certain school or a certain district or things like that. And often they would place her in one that was much lower um, than, I, 
it's kind of hard to describe like her functioning ability i guess per se i hate using functioning as a term mm -hmm. but it's kind of hard to come up with the right terms for these things because a lot of these are new <laughs> you yeah. know like there haven't been words made for it yet but mm -hmm. like her ability was much higher than the schools they were or the districts they wanted to place her in and so my mom had a fight really hard for that and part of that was because of the lack of research with autism in general but also with girls specifically in autism and i did research two years ago trying to find articles about the differences between how boys and girls are diagnosed in autism and there's very little research on gender difference within the diagnosis and it does look very differently like in girls than in boys um especially because like you were saying girls tend to be like a little on the quieter side and boys tend to be more hyperactive so it's hard to like really pinpoint that um I kind of went off on a tangent again. But. No, no, and no, I think that's part of why the conversation needs to happen is that there's so many directions it can go in. And like you touched on lack of research. Um, a lot of the vocabulary is new and also doesn't fit, but there's nothing better to, to replace it yet. And that's going to come come with time. Um, something I was wondering about as you were talking was about like how much your mom had to like correct the quote unquote professionals around her who were saying it's one thing and she's done the work and she is advocating uh constantly for your for your sister to get what she needs what is the process between like a parent observing something or maybe a teacher observing something and then like because at my school it's like a referral process for for anything that like may require external services so if like i notice something atypical also feel weird about the word atypical um and i <laughs> like, submit a referral to a counselor a psych um an outside evaluation agency a pediatrician like what is the process from like the family's perspective of like, um, my child needs something different. How do I go from when I recognize that she needs something different to her actually being in the environment where she is getting what she needs? So it's, it's a difficult process to start off. So everything I'm saying is gonna be from my mom's perspective because she's the one that's really fought to get my sister the services she needs, the things <laughs> she needs, et cetera. Um, the first thing my mom always says is as a parent, Google and look up your rights because you do have a right as a parent in regards to your child. And that's going to be especially important when you come in and are saying, my child needs these things, right? So you need to come in and know like, I have these rights, I can do these things, I can present these things. And also knowing what your child needs as well is very important. And that also comes with research and knowing your child. And as a parent, you tend to know your child. Um, and it, another part of it too is like, the process itself is rough. Uh, in regards to education and public education, um, as you mentioned, there are IEPs. Mm -hmm. And so I think each year my mom has to sit down with people from the school and get her IEP like reevaluated, mm -hmm. um, which can be difficult because, and not talking about necessarily the school she's in now, but in general, just want to make that clear so I don't get in trouble. Um, you know, it's difficult because those people don't always know her the best and they don't always know have a lot of research about autism either and um not to plug right now but um because we're talking about this i did an interview with my sister my mom and my dad talking about all the things we're talking about right now pretty much mm -hmm. um if because we're not going to get into all of it but if you would like if someone would like a resource it's a great yeah. interview uh, i published it on 221.nyc so that's T-W-O-T-W-O-O-N-E dot N-Y-C. Um, and so it's on there. It's a great interview. Uh, my parents had a lot of things to say, but like my mom goes more in depth about um, 
her experience with getting my sister diagnosed and her experience with dealing with the education system uh, within that interview, because it is a difficult and emotional process and there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. I think that's, I'm totally looking at that. Um, yeah, the IEP process is something that I am in charge of as a case manager for about 25 students. And that's something I think about a lot is like, I don't have the whole picture. I can't say if like these accommodations are working, I can't always progress monitor in, an, in a representative way. Um, on top of that, like everything's virtual. Of course, my students are going to be struggling, regardless of whether or not they have a learning disability or not. Like this is challenging for everyone. Um, especially for students who might need to be in social environments, who cannot be staring at a screen that long, regardless, ADHD or not, autism or not. So yeah. I think it's really important for anybody who, who may be curious, but also a professional who's on the other side of that table, like across from, from people like your mom, who are like, we're supposed to be like the specialists in our field, but we're not. We're not the specialists in an individual child every single time. Um, and... I think about how legally I have to send out um, procedural safeguards to ensure that a parent knows you have certain rights as a parent and you have the right to do this and so does your child even as a minor and then when they're 17 they can make their own decisions or they're 18 and they can make their own decisions about their learning plan and stuff like that but and even though we have it in different languages sometimes when I read it I'm like this language itself is inaccessible on purpose because they don't even, sometimes it seems like they don't even want the parent or guardian to know, like you could actually disagree with everything. You could actually advocate for so much more. Um, there are so many more resources and the ratio of how much of that conversation is dominated by the educators and how little we hear from the parent, guardian or child is ridiculous. And I know that like, obviously like your sister isn't here and you're coming more from a place of advocacy, but one of the one of the last things I want to ask you is what is the message about um, and you've you've said like to just normalize it and to expect the same from from everyone because they are regular Joes average Joes just like me and you what is something that you think the neurotypical community could just start implementing more consistently in their interactions with everyone just like not necessarily like to be hyper vigilant of how they're showing up and interacting with people who may or may not be on the spectrum or may or may not have ADHD but what's something that like anyone could benefit from being mindful of in engaging with literally any other person that's a good one um I think it's being open being open to people's differences and realizing that like you're not going to be the same like that person is going to be the same as you every person is different whether it's neurotypical neurodivergent thing people have different tastes aesthetics whatever it's being open-minded to that you don't have to always agree with the person or like the same things they do or necessarily even understand them you don't have to understand that person it's just common courtesy like being nice to other people even when they're not the same as you and i think especially in the u.s i think people typically tend to really struggle with that with dealing with people who do have different views or Mm -hmm. different takes on things, you know, and having like structured conversations about that and being like, well, your view is different, but I have this view and how do we go about talking about that? Which I understand talking about certain conversations and things that are going on in the world now, that's not the easiest because some of it is a little more in a black and white grayish area where it's like, well, these are people's lives, right? But I think in regards to what we're talking about, I think it's really important for people to have that open-mindedness and be like, okay, there are people who are different from me. 
and that's fine. We're all different on some level. Right, exactly. And it's funny because I always run these like episodes and like we'll have like these like half hour conversations about very nuanced topics with like gray areas and it's like people can disagree on their perception of ability, their perception of gender, race, class, um, accent, how you speak, how you dress, uh, how you are in relationships, whatever. And then at the very end of the episode, it's just like, what's the takeaway? It's just like, just be kind, be patient, be open. <laughs> like, it's such a bare minimum human interaction skill of just like, if you don't understand, just like, listen, just sit there and like, observe and listen and be patient and acknowledge that you don't know everything and this is new to you and just be open to you know learning more getting access to something and someone that you've never met before understood before and it's just like sometimes podcast episodes like all of them could just be succinct into just be open (laughs) exactly what you said really it just comes down to like people being nice to other people (laughs) like it's that simple like, sometimes I wonder, like, how come it's such a debate? Why are there so, why is it, why is it this difficult to understand? And I think it's because people, people do live in, like, these homogenous bubbles of, like, this is what I think this needs to look like. This is what a student, an ideal student looks like. This is what normalcy looks like. This is what womanhood looks like. This is what heteronormativity looks like. This is what an American looks like. And I'm like, no, <laughs> there's millions of people here. There's no way we're going to be on the same page about everything. And, I'm, and there's no way our brains operate on the exact same wavelength as everyone. Like, that's literally impossible. So if anything, we actually make our lives harder by pushing back on understanding when like, you could just learn from discussion and, and inclusion and hiring people and being in a classroom with people and working with people. Like, as we were talking about this, and I'm like, the conversation isn't technically necessary for us. <laughs> it's like, right. You know, but I'm just like, it will be very surprising to other people who are like, oh, I should just not judge them. <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah. I mean, like, definitely in, in the years I've faced with, like, discrimination against my sister, like, mm-hmm. it, it's interesting how many people you're, like, you look at them and you're, like, you could just be nice, or you could just even mind your own business and not have to, like, come up and tell my mom that she's a terrible mother because my sister's having a meltdown in a store, or that, like, my sister shouldn't be out and about in places, like, she shouldn't go to restaurants or live her life because she has autism, like, you can also just keep that to yourself as well. It's not even a thing of like, you know, like you don't have to actively be mean in that way. Exactly. And like, also there doesn't, people don't need to, in response to that, have to do like an entire cultural shift or like send a a person like that. Like, here's my dissertation on why what you did was wrong. It's just like, no, it's actually so much simpler to acknowledge that you didn't understand something and to mind your business and to only engage when like you feel like you're going to approach it from a place of like love or seeking to understand because if you're coming from a place of judgment of course it's going to come across negatively um and there have been instances where like I was around like people who I didn't understand why they were acting the way they were but I was like the last thing I'm going to do is escalate that and make people in this situation feel worse about what's going on because like at most I'm just confused I can either walk away or I can like ask someone in the situation like what do you need right now like what can I do that's helpful And if I don't know, I should not be there and I should not be imposing what I think needs to be happening in that situation. Um, And that's necessary in legislation around special education, in um, any legislation around people with disabilities, regardless of what that disability is. Um, If you're not the person who's the expert on it or who has experience on it, there's a benefit more for you in listening 
and observing and learning and just let people take the reins when it's their experience and their identity on the line. Also, if you don't mind, just because there's a part in the interview where my sister answers some questions I ask, um, and it relates directly to what we're talking about now. So if you wouldn't mind me just reading an excerpt from that, especially so we can get like her voice in there and an actual like autistic person's voice in this conversation, it'd be awesome. Yes, yes absolutely. Okay. So I asked her, um, how do you feel being in a regular education school and taking regular education classes? And for clarification, she's in a 15 to one program, so the classes are smaller and she's still in special education for her curriculum, meaning what she's learning um, is the same as non-special education students. And she attends a public school, not a specialized school. Um, so that's just her specific situation. And also she wanted me to ask this question. Like she came up with this question herself and was like, I want you to ask me this. Um, <laughs> and in response, she says, I feel like I'm an immigrant because I'm trying to fit into their, their world. And it's like my anxiety gets in the way. Like I take a culinary class and a music class and all that. That's the one that regular education classes take. And like other autistic people, they take like trips and learning how to get a job or like go to school and they don't know how to talk or be like in a district 75 class. But for me, it feels weird because most people are not autistic. And like sometimes I'm quite active around people, regular people. And I feel like I'm an immigrant going to school with a bunch of regular kids trying to fit into their world, trying to fit into their shoes but I'm not like those kids, I myself. And then I ask her, what do you want people to know about autism um, and anything else she wants to say? And this is what she had to say. I want them to know that it's okay having it. You shouldn't fear it. You should like, don't be scared of it. Be happy the way you are. And it's okay for me to have it, just don't be scared. I also want to say that kids like me who have autism, be nice and be aware of it. Like, think about it. How would you feel if you were different from other people? How would you feel if you were in their shoes? And that was, by the way, her exact words, um, word for word, I did not take anything out, so. I don't even know this part. Yeah, I adore her. I can see where your sentiments of just, I mean, very, very well said. Um, love the immigrant metaphor. I think that's a really great way to encapsulate um, her experience. And it's really important for us to hear that. Um, I, I do want to thank you for your time, but I also want you to plug where that people can read that interview um, again, just so as like a closing. I highly, highly encourage people to continue this conversation and continue their own research. And yeah, thank you so much, Pan. I learned a lot in just like 30 minutes. Of course, yeah. I'm always willing to talk about this stuff. Again, like I said, anything that can make my sister's life a better place, I am willing to speak up about it and do it. Um, and as for this interview, it's not to like toot my own horn, because these aren't really my words. These are exact words from um, my parents and my sister. Um, it's a really great interview, really insightful. It covers practically ev almost everything we've talked about um, within this podcast. Um, and so where you can find it is it's 221.nyc, um, which I spelled out before. The article itself is called One Girl's, One Girl's Voice on Her Autistic Life. Um, and it's by me, so you'll see it. And you'll see a picture of me and my sister as well that's up there. Um, so you'll kind of know it's us. Awesome, but. perfect. And then I will link that in the description and on my social media. And thank you again. I really appreciate your time <laughs> and I'm super excited to get more people to hear this episode. Of course.